Welcome, everybody. This is Natalie. This is Sam. This is Elizabeth. And we're your hosts of Worcesterhood, a podcast in Science Portland. We created Worcesterhood to be our community of support for women in science and their allies. And today, we have a special guest, the one and only Dana Schott. Dana, whose pronouns are she, hers, is the Community Engagement Coordinator at Tualatin Riverkeepers, which just means she works with people to promote environmental stewardship. She started out as a research biologist, but slowly morphed into an advocate for science communication and education. She also has an art degree. So today we just wanted to kind of like sit down and talk with Dana about her field of expertise and her WIS journey. So like, let's start with the first part. Um, you said that you um in your job today work with people to promote promote environmental stewardship so like what does that mean on a day-to-day kind of basis <laughs> uh it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people <laughs> unfortunately but, um but really i can give so the mo of twelves and river keepers which i know is supposed to be up me but it's um a weird organization that's dedicated to protecting and restoring the twelves river watershed which is basically it encompasses like washington county like outside of portland right um, so our job is really just to get people to like the environment <laughs> and want to then, you know, build the connections that they need to have to connect uh, to the river, to the animals, to the beaver, whatever, you know, to then go and protect it. So really it is about building an understanding of science in some capacity so that people will then want to then, you know, conserve the environment, if that makes sense. No, for sure. Um, like, what are some of the issues that are, like, most prominent in terms of, like, because, like, Tualatin River Keepers sounds, like, you know, very locally, <laughs> like, centered, you know, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, so we are, you know, we're focused pretty much on the Tualatin River itself, but, um, I mean, I personally, I think that's a little short-sighted because you have to, you know, everything's interconnected and you have to think about the bigger, especially the water, right? You have to think about a huger picture to make that work. But uh, for us, if you really want to break it down, like locally, our bigger issues are like a lot of urban growth planning things because that's the biggest thing that's kind of happening in Washington County right now. Um, So I I don't do that (laughs) because that's a lot of advocacy and legal stuff. But but that's our big thing is mostly just how um, urban development affects uh, water resources. So what or who first got you interested in science? Uh, I act. can I say octopuses? Is that weird? If I said that's who or what got me into it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> no, I was just, I, when I was a kid, younger, a kid, whatever, I, um, I was always really, really fascinated by animal behavior. Like that was the thing that made me want to go be a scientist was just learning about the things that animals did to survive and adapt and whatever, like all the weird behaviors they had. And so I'd say octopus in particular, because the one thing that they did, like that's the, there's lots of different stories. That's the one that I think is so funny that like I keep using it for anecdotes and things like this, <laughs> but they, mm-hmm. um, they were trying to teach octopus just like to do something. And they figured out inadvertently that octopus could observationally learn, not just be taught something because I don't know if anyone else has ever read this study or if I'm just the nerd who reads the studies, but like it's, <laughs> but they, um, they, so they brought the octopus in, they did the thing. It was like pull a lever and get a treat or something like that. Right. And so they eventually got the initial octopus to do it. And then they went and put him back in the holding tank and brought like subject two in 
Uh, and he just like crawled straight over and pulled the lever and got a treat right away. And they were like, what is this? Like, why is this happening? So what they, That's amazing. I know. <laughs> what they figured out is that the holding tank and the testing tank were both clear. And so they could see each other doing it. And so they picked up on how to, you know, so I just, it's just things like that where like why animals do the weird things that they do. Just like, I think is so cool that that was what I wanted to do is I wanted to be an animal behavior um, studier and so that's what I studied in college and stuff like that that was my goal was to really be a, a, a research biologist um, because of like weird humanoid behavior <laughs> I was gonna say I am also a visual learner so I feel like I have a <laughs> right <octopi> now <laughs> yeah. well that too I mean like humans are just animals right I mean that was part that was definitely part of it too is, and I think that's honestly how I got to where I am now with the communication part of it is that like we're not like separate from those at all like it's 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 bizarre to me that like initially my thought was like this sounds like something people do they're so smart <laughs> like that's what I liked about it but now I think the spin is like see we're all the same Bless. <laughs> <laughs> right it's <laughs> a great I like that it's a great origin story of your scientific <laughs> being that you are <laughs> perfect awesome. yeah so I guess now when you chose to pursue science throughout your education and now into your career was there ever a point that you doubted your choice to pursue science uh, yes and no. Um, and I think this this is the part I think that bridges why I'm not a research biologist anymore. But <laughs> great, we're just like connecting all the dots. <laughs> I know. So, but they. Um, so when I graduated, it's it's really hard to get jobs in science, especially in like Portland, Seattle, and Denver, like that kind of corridor where you're by a city that's also by nature because people want to live here because it's not in the middle of nowhere. So it's really really competitive. So. Mm-hmm. When I first graduated, um, I I wanted to go to, to get a master's in that and keep working in it, but um, I needed to, you know, have money and stuff at the time too. And so what I ended up doing <laughs> was a lot of um, seasonal jobs and like outdoor ed, so like doing outdoor school and stuff like that. Um, I ended up teaching um, fairly regularly for a couple of years before I actually did get a research job, um, and. It, that was kind of, that whole experience was kind of the catalyst, I think, for feeling like I did find the thing that made me want to, like, I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, but maybe not in the original way that I had thought I was supposed to be doing it because I didn't want to go mm-hmm. and um, <sighs> talk to people who felt like education wasn't important <laughs> and I didn't want to purely do education without taking into consideration like knowing science is important too because there's this huge disconnect right mm-hmm. where like the people who are real scientists quote unquote <laughs> um, feel like you know the more jargon you put in something and the more high level it is it's like look at this it's important and it's great and like it is important but if you can't tell anyone what you did and like they can't enact what you said to, to do <laughs> like what is you know what's the point so um, it was, I guess, just interesting that when I did apply to master's programs, it was a lot of like, well, I like doing, I want to make sure that I have this aspect in my work too. And they were kind of like, oh, okay. Like you could tell that it was like a downer for them when I wasn't a real scientist. <laughs> I wanted to have teaching in there. <laughs> but then when I did get the job, I, I worked in um, Hawaii for a while doing behavior stuff with birds because they have a lot of um, these remote monuments that like people can't go to. So there's a lot of bird sanctuaries and people study them, and, you know. Um, I, I routinely was the one that they called, like made go talk to people all the time. So it was, 
it was, I guess, kind of eye-opening that like it really is a skill set that people don't have <laughs> when there's, I mean, some people do, but you know, it's, it's not a skill set that science has valued for um, that long that you have to be able to talk, like take the jargon from like up here from the research and be like, this is what this means. Uh, and that skill set is just not as prevalent as it should be. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, can we just pause for a second, though, and realize that you lived in Hawaii for a bit? And yeah, I guess that's as amazing <laughs> as it sounds. I'm like, I would like to go just live in Hawaii for a bit. That sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, I kind of dropped that in there, like, totally nonchalantly. But like, <laughs> it was uh, it was an interesting, it was an AmeriCorps experience. I don't know if anyone here knows AmeriCorps, but it was, it is a, I mean, like, I love Hawaii, and I would recommend Hawaii, but I would not recommend AmeriCorps. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. uh, um, I think its goals are really nice, but it's definitely something that hasn't been brought kind of up to speed with equity and, like, into the real world, because it definitely, like, mm -hmm. it's, it, um, it's like the Peace Corps, but specifically for United States work, uh, and as a result, they treat you like a volunteer, so they pay you, but it's a stipend, so really it comes out to, like, $4 an hour, and so you really can't do it unless you have a safety net, and it's just, it's not a super great experience, but it was the only way I could get into the research stuff, because people were, <laughs> basically, it's, like, the new version of an unpaid internship, as they have an AmeriCorps member, <laughs> and so the, the work itself was astounding. It was with the, um, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, because they're the people that oversee those monuments, and so it was, um, this part office job, like doing the data and things like that. But then every once in a while, you got to like actually go out to those islands that people can't go to and like just wander around in the birds and like tag them and stuff. It was, it was pretty fun, but it was also like, you could tell that it was one of those lifestyles that like everybody who worked there either met, you know, their partners in like equally weird ways or just didn't have any because they were constantly just doing these weird, like, I'm really glad that I did it. But at the same time though, like, yeah, that would be a recipe for burnout pretty quick. So mm -hmm. Especially, I guess, like, when you were talking about, um, like, the communication bit mm -hmm. and how, like, people were, like, you're not a real scientist. Um, can you, like, talk about, like, I don't know, was that, like, part of the thing that made you kind of be, like, do I, like, did you ever, did that, like, how did that impact you, I guess? And, like, I know, like, I don't know how I'd react in that situation. <laughs> um, and, like, I, like, have so much respect <laughs> for science communicators for that reason. So, like... How did you like power through? What was the, yeah. I, I had, I think this, a similar reaction that it sounds like you might have had where I was kind of like, what do you mean I'm not a real scientist? Like, I know what I'm doing. Like, this is like, what are you like, what are you going to do? Just keep not talking about your work. Like, how are you, like, you going to get money if you don't do that? Right. It just seems so stupid to me that that was the, the reaction. And then I know for me too, you know, like I just, it, like I wanted to prove that I was doing something good and so like if I wasn't actually a real scientist and it was like well is this job you know like I'm supposed to be the smart kid like what if I don't <laughs> you know so it was weird and I think what happened is that while I was in Hawaii the person who was managing most of the communications around what that whole department does because that specifically there was such a huge deal because you physically can't go to those places where the birds are right like they're closed off to the public and so if you want to like have the support of your community you have to somehow convey what you're doing and if you can't physically look at it like all that's left is Facebook <laughs> so and so her I think she was really kind of I don't think she did it on purpose but like seeing someone who was like you know she has a cool job like she's really responsible for this cool thing no one thinks she's stupid you know like it was I think it was seeing someone who had that job own it <laughs> yeah that was really I think what made me be like okay yeah I can do this this is fun like 
you know yeah definitely like the role of just like someone to look up to and someone to be like oh like eventually that'll be me um is like (laughs) good to hold on to for sure there's certain jobs in stem that i feel like are very linear where it's like you do Mm pre-med you go to medical school you end up working for minimum wage and residency and then you become a doctor but um i think especially for like things like conservation it's not um you know it's a lot more like windy so like how did you find your way through weird it's like windy Um, but not at the same time (laughs) Mm -hmm. like it definitely has the exact same sort of um projection that you're talking about except it's not quite the same thing as like school job residency whatever it's definitely like you have your degree and then you get your master's or new work or whatever and there's this very linear thing of like you go in and you get the crappy job that no one maybe is paid maybe not probably not (laughs) and you put in you know all this experience like volunteering basically until you can get this next job which typically for research stuff is only like four-year term so it's still not even a permanent so there's just this there's a there is pretty much a ladder that people are expecting you to follow when you do jobs like that so it's it's weird because people think that it's it's very it's not quite as like step one step two step three but it definitely is you just there's more wiggle room between the steps and it's it's I don't know if it's harder but it's definitely like what do I do if I don't ever like I can't it, it, I think it makes you make decisions faster about what you are going to tolerate and what you don't because if you spend you know too long on the rung of the ladder where it's like I'm just volunteering for like you know getting my foot in the door like you still need to eat I don't I don't think it's better or worse but it is it does have a sort of like an expectation path too okay yeah no that definitely makes sense I did mm-hmm. not know that. <laughs> that is good to know. Do you feel like um, that that like that step where it's like you function as like an unpaid intern? Like, is that um, like a barrier for a lot oh, of people? Like, you know? And like, I mean, are there things being done to like make it less awful, <laughs> or is it just like this is the way it is? Both. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who are. I mean, it's kind of. I think it's a big cycle of circular problems because as we all know science is not typically funded very well and so like they're just it's I think there's people out there who do want to change it but can't because like they just don't have the money to pay an actual person which is a stupid excuse but like if that is the way it is you know I think people rest on that a bit but I think people know that it's not sustainable or it can't be sustainable it's just very hard to break it because there's so especially in conservation there's so many people like me you know who are like I'm gonna go save the whales and I'm so excited and I will do it for free because I love whale you know and so like when I get old enough that I don't want to do it for free anymore like there's a person below me who's ready to come up and do it and so like there really isn't anything yet I think that's forcing them to stop doing it I, I hope that they find a way to rectify that. And I know that um, I know I just like shat all over AmeriCorps, but <laughs> but the, the program I did was actually a little bit self-aware enough that they were definitely trying to make it so that it was targeting um, kids who lived on Hawaii. So um, they had, you know, secret things in the application where it was like, you know, like must have vehicle and like housing is not provided. And so it was, it was, kind of like an unspoken sort of a thing that you could tell when you're reading it that um unless you like 
knew someone there who would look out for you like I did. That was why I did it because I had friends and family who like lived over there and I knew that I could stay with them if I had to. And so I, it, it, but it was clearly designed for people who had some kind of connection to where they were. So it wasn't like, it, it didn't end up as much like a gap year program for rich white girls <laughs> as AmeriCorps tends to be. <laughs> so I, I think people are trying. It's just, it's, I mean, it's kind of the same problem that we see, you know, outside of science where it's when it's a huge systemic problem, it's like, A, where do you start? But then also like you have to do so much work to break down the whole thing that it might take a while. But I think they know. I think so. I mean, it's like here, we expect you to get a degree, Mm -hmm. maybe a second one. And then it's like, oh, but no, no, now you have to volunteer. So you do all that education. It's like, I understand you need experience Mm -hmm. and things like that, but it is always interesting to me how it's like, oh no, to get experience, you need to have an education, but we're not going to pay you. And it's like, it's all very kind of shifty. I feel like that happens across the board in a lot of different areas. So, but it's very interesting to see that that's like how often it's just built into that Mm -hmm. ladder of succession of going up in your career. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I know it's really bad too with that whole cycle of like, well, you need a job to get the experience to get the to job. Like, you get trapped really easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that like to get that much education, <laughs> like you're probably taking yeah. out loans. Like <laughs> the whole situation. No, like, is how am I supposed to pay my loans ideal. back on my volunteer feel good bird watching? Like, like either way it's clearly a broken thing and I hope that the people that are in charge do um notice it and do something at least from the positions that they have of like relative you know power or whatever to to do something to make that less of a, a barrier yeah I'm glad you brought up the like um like gap year program for rich that's 100% what it's like um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I almost think that like is that in like the kind of target demographic for like conservation in general um especially because like the safety net is so required in order to like kind of be able to continue working or like do you feel like like how I, I think in an earlier episode Elizabeth was talking about how like basically white women like made conservation a thing that like western mm-hmm. society like is that is palatable for western society so like i don't know how does that like and i mean to add another layer <laughs> like um i think ecology is like one of the fields where women mm-hmm. do dominate um the workforce so like i don't know like what are how what is your experience of those things like am i spouting complete bs yeah. <laughs> No, I don't know. <laughs> I think I agree that it seems weirdly women dominant for sure. And it's, it's, I think the whole thing is white dominant. So then I guess by default, yeah, it probably is white women dominant. But I don't know. I mean, I have, Elizabeth has heard me rant about this before, but like I don't, I have a soapbox about conservation <laughs> and white people as a whole, just because it seems to me that you shouldn't create a whole industry to fix the problem that you created if that makes sense, right? Because like indigenous populations were totally fine managing all the, they didn't need conservation. And then white people came in and did the oil drilling to why is it that it's such a white dominant field to, right? <laughs> like Profiting off our problems. Right, and like yeah. why, how, well, pro- not even profiting, but like how on earth are the people who caused the problem in the first place? Like, why are we the ones who are going to fix it? We're not going to fix it because we're the, we didn't, if we knew how to fix it, we wouldn't have done it in the first place. And so like, I, I don't, 
I, I don't know exactly what happened to make conservation as a whole. I think it is an industry that is very, very rich or whiter greenwashing. You know, I think that whole thing is really in, embedded in what it is. And I don't know if that's partially just because like they're trying to make things faster and cheaper and they don't last as long and whatever. And so doing things the environmentally friendly way is more expensive and or at least now it is so that it's just kind of a accidental domino problem i don't know so it's um but i I definitely think it's a a weird thing and you're not wrong but i don't know if i have any insights (laughs) yeah i don't know i've always thought that like i mean up until a certain point i really saw like conservation activism as a very like white thing maybe this is growing up in portland um But, like, whenever we had school walkouts for, like, you know, something, you know, environmentally related, um, some pipeline or, like, something was happening, um, it, like, it it was so weird because, uh, like, maybe you had a test that day and you couldn't leave school or something. But when people did leave, the people who were still in school Mm -hmm. were kids of color. And, like, kids of color can't afford to, like, necessarily just, like, up and leave from school and have zero ramifications or consequences. Um, And so, like, I guess, like, as someone who's, like, kind of done a lot of, like, public environmental activism, (laughs) um, like, how does, how do you square that? And, like, how is there are there things that we can do about it or is it just like everything is bad and like we have to do this in increments no I think there's definitely (laughs) things you can do um that are not hard we just have chosen to not deal with it until now (laughs) um I think um I will shamelessly plug a thing that is I have nothing to do with but I love it there's an Instagram account called intersectional environmentalist if you haven't looked it up you should definitely 100% look it up because it's fantastic um and they do a lot of really good work just talking about how you cannot physically save the environment if you are not also paying attention to social justice like it just will not work because you are doing what you're talking about right where like you cannot protest if you have to go take a test and you can't leave like you can't trying to think of an example so this isn't something that I work on at, at work this is something that our advocacy person does with the urban stuff right is that we're talking a lot about tree codes uh, because we support tree codes because you know the more shade makes the water healthier and whatever and the fish are better and we need trees for nature for people and it's great (laughs) and washington county's unincorporated area i think she's gonna kill me if i say the wrong thing (laughs) but there's an area like washington county's unincorporated area or something doesn't have tree protections like the urban areas do and so we're talking a lot about making sure the tree protections are in the urban planning documents when they're doing it and something that i keep this is weirdly this has also kind of become my job at my organization too is where I'm the one that's kind of like wait hang on and like you know the DEI aspect of it is what I keep trying to badger into people but you know with Trico's right is that you know that there's a correlation between um, uh, nicer neighborhoods and tree cover and so if we are advocating for all of our neighborhoods to have equal access to parks and trees and big trees and whatever that's great but if you're not also then thinking about like well what happens when that neighborhood becomes unaffordable and you push people out like how did you save the environment and who are you protecting the environment for if that's all you're doing (laughs) so i i don't think that we have to just resign ourselves to incremental change that takes a long time um especially because like 
I mean, climate change is an actual problem, whether or not white people took it over or not, it is a real problem. <laughs> so we don't have the time to do that. But I think there's definitely, there's people out there that are advocating that just haven't been given the platform. And there are people out there who are, you know, saying a lot of really valuable information and we just steamroll over them because we don't listen. I think we just have to honestly probably just stop talking and listen to people who have been working alongside with us, but just maybe not quite as prominently. They know what they're doing. This is what Dana and I do. I like once a month, we just vent and get on our soapboxes <laughs> about but, things. So. You know. I mean, it's just things like there's data out there too, that like for all the sciencey people who want to claim that they're scientists and they have to, you know, like I know um, we had someone or I had a conversation with somebody once, it was not work-related, but they were talking about the, um, the, the whole insurrection thing at the Capitol where they stormed, and, and they were trying, we were talking about, there were three of us, and two of us were talking about how like, it was just blatantly a show of white supremacy because of the difference in police force, right? And like, we all knew that. And this one person was just kind of like, well, where's the evidence? Do you have data? That's... And we're like, okay, I can't give you data for that. Like, clearly there's data. But then when there is data, people ignore it too. <laughs> so it's very like, like we, you know, like, like if you're going to talk about pollution, right, in air quality or whatever, right, poorer neighborhoods that tend to be communities of color live closer to factories that are putting out pollution. If you look at data sets that say, how much do you care about climate change? People of color, like far and away, resoundingly say yes, more often than white people do. <laughs> like there is, there's people out there that are advocating. There are people who are out there that have their own grassroots organizations that are just smaller and they don't get the money because they're not Sierra Club and they're not Greenpeace and whatever. It's just, they're small and people don't want to give up um, their positions of leadership and power and they don't want to like share <laughs> with the communities that know you know how to help their own communities out of the the environmental racism realistically that's happening to them and i think that's a huge part of the reckoning that i hope that the environmental movement as a whole has i think it's starting but it's still very much just like like i'm of them i'm <laughs> like i'm kind of over giving people like head pats for doing like you know acknowledging that like we're really white we're taking steps to not be as white like great but it's 2021 it took you that long like I mean you don't get a head pat for realizing now I mean and I because I grew up in Portland too right and I think that it's the same problem where Portland gets kind of a pass because we're usually pretty progressive on other things and so the racism has kind of just been like like on the, <laughs> like it's really low and we have other things that are covering it up like a band-aid and like they're getting a lot I've heard a lot of people being like well thank god at least Portland is talking about the fact that the entirety of Oregon was a sundown town like I mean I guess that's mm -hmm. a good first step but like why is it that it didn't happen until now yeah, it's like we've known for a very long time Oregon right. was racist, just like every other I mean, state. It's not worse because I think country. we're the only state that had it in our charters, right? Like, I don't, it's not, it's not a good look. And I don't know why, again, I don't know why it took this long. And you shouldn't be getting a head pat for finally acknowledging, like, hmm, okay. Well, I'm not from Oregon. So I recently found that out when I first moved here. I think it was March slash April of 2019. And I Googled mm -hmm. it because I couldn't believe that somebody told me that that's what it was and it was just scary <laughs> it it as a person of color it makes you think like how many people that you walk down the street have that mentality is it still around am I going to be in the wrong neighborhood at some point 
I don't know if you've watched the movie mm-hmm. like Get Out, um, but like the like the white liberal like <laughs> horror show <laughs> that Portland can be sometimes. Um, yeah, no, for sure, it's definitely a legitimate mm-hmm. concern. Where is like so like legitimately? I have this question <laughs> because. <laughs> Now that I have a chance to speak to bona fide conservationist, like what is the line between individual responsibility, like, like right, <laughs> like my roommate and I are like constantly like, you know, like tearing our hair out, being like, is this compostable? <laughs> like we don't, yeah. know. <laughs> um, and like you know, we're using like you know plastic bags and stuff like that. So like, where's the line between like individual? responsibility and like not taking long showers etc etc and like corporations so some god-awful number like nine percent of all the plastic we've ever made is actually recycled right and so like it's just not like all of the things like oh recycle and it'll be fine and take shorter showers and it'll add up I mean it's all it's all a giant marketing ploy made by all those corporations that you're talking about right so like I mean it doesn't maybe like the not taking as many airplane trips might add up and actually do something. But like, except for that, like you could take two minute showers for the rest of your life. And probably you would not make a dent compared to like what Exxon does. Right. So like, I mean, I think it's great if you want to, you know, use reusable bags or whatever. I'm sure it makes it somewhat of a difference, but, <laughs> but the, the more important thing to do is really to focus on like the bigger large scale regulations so that people aren't dumping, you know, like, literal oil into the ocean like that's a way bigger deal than you using a plastic bag one time no i guess that makes sense and also there's always those conversations about like well we're using reusable bag but how much energy Mm -hmm. and oil and what have you did it take to actually make that bag the energy that goes into making all those new fuel efficient cars or whatever like it does not make it worth having the car like we need like it's a better decision to buy up all of the used cars and get rid of all the old cars before you make a new car. So like, it's actually more environmentally friendly to drive your like beat up Honda Civic with a crack in the windshield, like my car. <laughs> I love it. I was like, I, yeah, I have a Honda Civic. It does not have a crack in the windshield though. But I was like, I feel like, like it's like just far enough away that I can't see it when I'm driving. And so I have not fixed it, but but it's true, though. Apparently, it really it costs so much energy to make like a Prius that you're better off buying all of the used cars up. And you're saving probably a lot of money. Like, I mean, we have like a super old Prius at home. And my mom's like, guess how much money I save mm-hmm. today on gas every time. Yeah. Still. Um, yeah, I know. And I mean, it's also depending on where you live, like if your electricity comes right. from a coal plant. What's the difference? Like. You're still charging right. your car with emissions. Yeah, your car is not yep. yeah providing emissions, but what you're fueling your car with still yeah, is. It's just then... it's. I think the only good argument for individual actions, like you're talking about, Natalie, is like it proves that there's a market for the environmentally friendly stuff. Because I think that's probably what people, you know, they're just like, no, we have to continue making plastic things because people won't recycled glass or whatever I don't know like whatever the reason they don't make like glass stuff anymore or whatever but um I think you know it is sort of important on some levels like as much as you can because all again it's been you know changed so it's more expensive now to do the environmentally friendly thing and not all of us can do that and that's okay but yeah it's not equitable I'm not gonna no. go pay 10 bucks <laughs> for milk in a glass 
It legit costs a lot. Have you guys been to New Seasons? You can buy milk mm-hmm. in mean, a glass jar and it's like I'm seven twenty. No, I remember my mom did that one. Because she of her own accord had read that article where it said something about only nine percent of all the plastic and it wasn't even like nine percent of recyclable plastic is recycled. It's like nine percent of all plastic ever created in the entire like fifteen whatever years that plastic has existed has ever been recycled. And she read it and like had one of those, you know, like like existential crises where she's like, I can't buy anymore. I can't. (laughs) So I remember we went to like Fred Meyer or something. I went with her and we were like, we're going to try and we're going to do it. And it was just like, it was twice as expensive as normal because even like the mayonnaise, right? I mean, like the mayo comes in the the plastic jar and then there's also a version that comes in the glass jar, but it's like $3 and like eight. Surprisingly, The Good Place Mm -hmm. does a really good job talking about Mm -hmm. like the moral quandary of like trying to always do the right thing where it's like, the reason why, like, we don't want to buy, like, $2 t-shirts yeah. from H&M is because, like, of, like, capitalism and mm-hmm. colonialism and, and, labor like, and horrible just, things. You know, yeah, and yeah. if you're the good place, they had to go and, not, spoiler alert, they had to go and, like, fix, they had to, the whole system was broken and they had to make a whole new system, right? So, like, I mean, not only did the good place have a good example for that, like, they actually did do what you're supposed to do about it. <laughs> Which is to burn to the ground. <laughs> Build a new beautiful one. I love how Chidi thought he went to hell or to the bad place yeah. because of almond milk. Because it takes so much energy to make anyway. almond milk. And he knew it. That is but one of my favorite lying. parts too. And then it like pan over to I watched mm-hmm. the ranch on Netflix. And I don't know if it maybe you've seen that, but then like the old dad, you know, played by Samuel Elliott, he's like what the hell is almond milk? Like, where's the tea on an almond? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do, you know, take your two-minute showers or whatever, get your Prius, but, like, also make sure you're talking about, like, you know, being a vegan doesn't solve anything because you're exploiting all the people in South America that now don't have their native foods because they have to ship their quinoa to you. <laughs> like, also aren't getting paid for it and, you know, not to mention the shipping, right? I mean, if you have to ship it, it's going to cost some energy and it's not good. Yeah. Right? So, like, you know, being a vegan won't stop it but if we you know make your choices do your thing but also talk about that like I think talking again this is why I became a science communicator right is that you can decide what to do but like if you don't talk about the fact that individual actions do not in fact add up (laughs) they might make you feel better but they do not add up and unless you get that out there and really like you know put pressure on whoever it is that's in charge to make those regulations and you know get enough people behind you to at least vocalize that like we do in fact want you to you know do this that's a very good place I think just to start if you're feeling existential dread about whether or not buying your almond milk in a a glass jar is worth it (laughs) don't do it but then tell people why they shouldn't do it either (laughs) like what would you say to like someone who is interested in conservation and is like maybe this is something I want to do um for like either like as a career or just like as something as like Mm -hmm. a soapbox think broader than what conservation looks like now because it's not I think well first of all for two reasons the first reason is that it's imperative that we make everything green because again whether or not it's whitewashed it is a climate change is a legit problem and so we do need to act you know quickly to, to fix that and so you then I think we need to make every single job and every single interest and every single thing have an environmental component to it, right? I mean, like we can make healthcare more green. We can make whatever you do can have an environmentalist spin to it. 
and that's okay. So if you think that you're, you know, if you're really into saving the world or whatever, but you really don't want to do field work, <laughs> like be a writer and talk about environmental issues or be a lawyer and go work for the CDE or whatever, you know, like there's lots of different avenues for you to find an intersection between where your interests are and thinking that it's important to do something that's environmentally friendly. I think that would that would be my advice is like if you really want to do it great but like think bigger and figure out how it is that you can make whatever you're currently doing like fit into that model instead of trying to go the other way around yeah I really love that because especially because like we had just talked about how like the current mm-hmm. model of activism isn't perfect so like we do have to think broader um and like regardless of like what field yeah. you end up being in before we close we wanted to play a game with you called this versus that a game adapted from the Versus Poetry podcast. We're going to ask you to choose either the best or the worst of something. Do you want to choose the best of things or do you want to choose the worst of things? How about the best? I feel like that was a downer of a conversation. So let's go the best. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not against the worst of things, but I'm going to oh, go yeah. for the, go for the best today. <laughs> the only goal of the game is to just answer as fast as you can. Best Portland place to visit. Does the beach count? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the beach is important. It's related to Portland. It's outside of Portland. Um, the Forest Park would be a real Portland answer. Best food week. You know, like Portland does the food week. Dumpling week because oh. they have a they play loose and fast with the definition of a dumpling, and so things like ravioli and empanadas count. And so they have basically everything that's covered in dough counts as a dumpling, and it's fantastic. I mean, it's also dumpling week right now. It is dumpling week, by the way, for those. Yeah. <laughs> Best subject in school. Like, we're talking, like, middle school, high school, college is uh, too class. complex for that. <laughs> Best um, wintry thing to do. Hot springs. Best decade. The 2000s. <laughs> like, before the stock market and the housing bubble. <laughs> I don't know. Is there... Is there... <laughs> Is there, is there yeah, a good decade that didn't have some shit so happen? I don't know. Um, best mm. animal to study? Whales. They do lots of, they do, they do lots of cool <laughs> we love things. Really quickly, before we close, um, I just like want us to end on a warm, fuzzy note. And I really want to talk about like how you and Elizabeth became friends. So this is how, for our listeners, this is how Dana came on the pod. And like we love... <laughs> finding our people in science so like how did how did this happen like i want the origin story centrical throughout does this thing in forest grove yes. yes. they have a thing about <laughs> tables for mexican independence day <laughs> and uh we were the last two to sign up so we got tables next to each other um and i worked for the rice museum at the time um the Rice Museum of Rocks and Minerals. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I talked to her. So Tualatin River Keepers is, a, I think, a good-hearted organization, but as per usual with the conservationists, it's real white. And so we were tabling. I was mad because we were tabling at this event that was specifically about Mexican Independence Day, hosted by a like a Latinx serving organization that there are mostly Latinx people there. And we had this one, like we had a pretty brochure of all of our stuff that we had normally done. And then there was this very clear afterthought version in Spanish that was like a white printed out thing with like no pictures. And I'm pretty sure that's what I was talking to Elizabeth about. So I was like, man, I really need to redo this. Like, this is stupid. Why are we at this festival? Like, this is dumb. 
Yeah, and yeah. I was offering my was translations. Services. Or I think I was telling you too, like I spoke Spanish, but like I need to actively use it or else it goes away real quick. And so I was like, I need someone to help me translate. I don't remember what happened, but it was about the fact that we had really terrible Spanish resources. And I thought it was weird we were at this festival in the first place. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we love it. We love to hear wonderful, slight hate bonding origin stories. Oh, you make friends <laughs> bonding over things you don't like together. Yeah. I mean, 10 out of 10 way to make friends if I do say so myself. That's it for today's podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Whiskerhood. Make sure to subscribe so you'll know when we drop more episodes and comment so more folks can find us or just tell people about us. That's the best way to spread the word and tell us your stories or ask questions you'd like answered on the pod. You can email us at podcast at womeninsciencepdx.org. We'd love to hear from you. And, of course, special thanks to Homa Kostrayani, who designed our awesome cover art. Bye, everyone!